in uh, Plato's Republic, the, con the subject of, of temptation and, and virtue is brought up, and Glaucon, this is Plato's brother, Glaucon suggests this, this is his thesis, that no man, no matter how virtuous, could withstand a temptation knowing that he would not be found out. In other words, there was no one that could endure some sort of, no one would deny the opportunity to do something wrong if they knew they couldn't be found out or they wouldn't have a consequence. And Glaucon appealed to a rather famous story. It's called the myth of Gyges, and they all knew it, and the myth goes like this. Gyges was a, a, a humble and noble shepherd. And one day when he was tending the, uh, the flock, the, there was an earthquake and it rattled the mountain behind him and it opened up a vault. It turns out it was a cave. No, it wasn't a cave. It was a tomb. And there was this terrific bronze you know, uh, horse in there. And on top of the horse was a giant, the skeletal remains of a giant. And on that giant's hand was a ring, that gold ring. Gyges took and put it on his hand and twisted it and he became invisible. And even though he was known for his ethics, he found a way to become the messenger to the king about the flocks. And when he, once he got inside the castle walls, he used the power of invisibility and seduced the queen and killed the king and became the king himself. The, the, the point that Guy Jesus is trying to make is that if a person didn't have consequences or they wouldn't be found out, if they were assured that they couldn't be seen or known about, they would have like the power of like a God amongst men or a king, a king amongst men. And it would be just a matter of time before they would steal something that didn't belong to them and still more time and they would find themselves being murderous. Today, we're going to look at King David, a man that could wear the ring a man that could handle the power that God had given him because we're in 2 Samuel now in our studies of the United Kingdom, he's been sifted, I think. I can't make sense of his 10 to 15 years on the run from Saul for doing nothing wrong but doing everything right. But somehow in that, in those cave dwellings, in that obedience, in that long suffering, he becomes a different kind of man. And we're going to see this, that the way the writer writes this, he's going to show this compare and contrast, again, of his, this man, David, the man after God's own heart, and all the other players in this story, because David will not be intoxicated with power. Power is seductive, my friends. It, it, it twists the soul. It torques our spirit. Very few people can live with power. And if we live with power for too long, we think we have a different standard to live by. Nietzsche made it famous with his Uberman ethics, right? We, we have a different set of rules. Everyone else, I get that. But me, with the power, I live a different life. It, power is even uh, seductive to the people around power. I think some people like just to live off the radiation of other people's authority. And so people will lie, beg, borrow, steal, do whatever it takes to be near people with power so that they can yield maybe these alternative ethics. And today we're going to see in the United period kingdom, the United period, United kingdom period that we look at in chapters one through four, we'll hurry through these four chapters and I'll 
I'll try to explain what's happening from the writer's perspective. I would encourage you to read it on your own. I'm going to highlight what's happening here. But David will become king in this story, but he will not become a king like everyone else becomes a king. How do you become a king? Well, you're born into it. If that doesn't work, you kill your way into it. Or sometimes you have to be a very shrewd politician. You have to work your way into it. David will do none of those. David will wait. David will obey. David will be patient and powerful. He will, he will be God's man courageous. And no one, this is probably the theme in these chapters, no one will bring a charge against David and his throne. This is God's man, this is God's king, done God's will, God's way. That's what our author wants us to know. And I want you to listen carefully and, and, and read along and see how David is different. He's been sifted, he's been refined, he's been made holy, and he's going to be all but put over to the side while everyone else does what they do for selfish ambition. Chapters 1 through 4 aren't even supposed to be in the story. They're not even supposed to be part of this because in chapter, by the time you get to chapter 1 in 2 Samuel, we find out that King Saul and Jonathan, the heir apprentice, the prince, have been killed. Jonathan was killed in combat know this, this is, you have to know this for later, but Saul was nearly killed. He's maimed um, severely, and he asks for someone to take his life, but the person won't because they won't raise a hand against the king, and so Saul takes his own life. The point is, there's no King Saul, and there's not even a Prince Jonathan anymore, and so, so Israel knows that it's time for David to be king. Jonathan has said it three times already. Saul has said it twice, and everybody knows the story of David being anointed by Samuel. All the while, in that context, there are six men that will be motivated by nothing except pure personal ambition, and they will say whatever they have to say, and they will do whatever they have to do to gain power. In contrast, there'll be this one man, David, the cave dweller, peacefully, patiently, courageously, waiting on God. Look at, listen for the power of David's self-forgetfulness in this story. It will not be about him. He won't even know it to make it about him. And we'll see what it means to be a man after God's own heart. First story, here we go. First story is someone that watched Saul die has become now the messenger for that for, for that news, and he goes to David, and he tells him what happens. And this person is dressed the part. What he knows is David is the next king, and so he's trying to get on inside track, maybe get part, you know, picked as part of his cabinet before it's decided. And so he goes to him, and, and know this, the man is a liar. He won't tell what really happened. He'll tell what, David, what he thinks David wants to hear, and he's a looter. He will steal off the dead king. And so he tells the story. Well, I happened to be on Mount Gil uh, Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning against his spear with the chariots and the riders almost upon him, and he turned around and he saw me and he called me and said, what can I do? And then Saul said to me, stand over me and kill me. I am in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. Now, here's the problem. I mean, he's like, oh no, this young man thinks that he, owned, he, un, he understands David. He, 
He thinks that David is like all the other men that are selfishly ambitious for the crown. He doesn't know that David's been refined. He doesn't know about David's heart towards God. He doesn't know about David's understanding of God's value of authority and submission to authority. This guy missed church last week. Okay, when we were studying 24 and 26, he wasn't there. And this is going to be an expensive lesson that he has to learn. His ignorance is going to cost him. He will brag about the very things that he will be judged by. And so he tells the rest of the story that's not even true. He says, I stood over the king, and, so I, and I killed him, and I took the crown off of his head, and I took the band off his arm, and now I present it to you, my lord. <laughs> Doesn't go well with David. And David asked him, why were you not afraid to lift your hand against and destroy the Lord's Jehovah's anointed? And David said to him, your blood is on your head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed Jehovah's anointed. And so he looks over at one of his guards and says, strike the man dead. And he does. The runner is killed. And, and now here's what's important in this part of the passage is David has sincere grief for the king that tried to kill him three times. It says, and then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and they tore them and they mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan because they had fallen by the sword. That's, that's David's pure heart. He still sees the king that was crazy, that was after him. He still sees him as God's appointed king and he grieves this in a great way. And that's an outline that we'll see later on. It's the purity of his heart. This first story is to give kind of a template for you to hear what the author is trying to communicate to us, and that is that David is innocent. He doesn't want any part of ill-gotten gain. He wants everyone to know that he would rather, well, here's what he wants us to know today is Proverbs chapter 16, verse 8, better a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. Better a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. David would rather live in misery in God's will, running from cave to cave to cave, than be in a place of safety or even authority out of God's will. Better is one day with the Lord than a thousand without him. He would say, I, would, I think the very definition of what it means to be a Christ follower, to be a disciple of Christ, is to, is to have this value that you would rather be confident in God's will and a clear conscience knowing that you're serving him, no matter the misery it caused, than to be out of God's will, living in splendor. That's how David's defining it. That's what we're supposed to learn today. Well, with the king and the prince uh, dead, David is now anointed at a, a great town. He sets up a new capital. It says in verse chapter, now we're in the chapter two, the funerals are over. And then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David, the king over the house of Judah. So he's the king now. He gets, this is what we all have been waiting for. And the capital that he's picked is Hebron. It's a priestly city. It's what's called a, a city of refuge. It means a place that you can go for, for peace. It's a place that you can go for, for justice. It's a, it's, it's a safe place. And so this is the part we've been waiting for. All of 1 Samuel has been leading to this passage. Let's go. David's the king. Let's get on with this. Let's do God's will God's way. But there's eight people that don't want part of that. And today we're going to look at, especially we're going to look at two. And I need a chart to explain the introduction of characters here. There will be, in this story, 
what's called the house of Saul and the house of David. Clearly, these are two kings, but now King Saul is dead, and his oldest son that's remaining at this point is a man named Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth is actually not his name. That's his nickname that everyone gives him. That nickname means the man of a shameful thing. And the shameful thing that he does is become king of the northern tribes. Now, each king has a vice president, and that vice president is in charge of all of the military. And for Saul, the house of Saul, it's a man named Abner. And he is, well, he doesn't have a king, so he doesn't have a job, and he's selfishly ambitious, and so he'll be looking around. He'll do whatever it takes to get power. His equivalent, his rival in the house of David, is a man named Joab. Here's what I want you to understand before we read another sentence, that Abner and Joab are swamp rats. They live by the swamp. They will die by the swamp rules. You don't want to like these people. As a matter of fact, I think it's written in a way so that you loathe them. The second thing you need to know about Joab and, and Abner is they live inside of us. This selfish ambition that they have, this thing to get whatever they want and do whatever it has, they'll do whatever it takes, oh, we have plenty of that. We can decorate it and say it's God's will, and sometimes it is. But to do God's will with your own ambition pushing, it does not end well for these people. And it's, they're supposed to be a warning to us. And here's what Abner does. He's without a king, and so he goes to Ishbosheth. And here, meanwhile, that's why everything changes with this one word, meanwhile. Meanwhile, Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to this town, some name, and Abner made him king over all of Israel. Abner made him king over all of Israel. Ishbosheth's just going along for the ride. He doesn't know what's going on. He's the person who makes bad decisions. And every, here's, the, here's the point. Everyone knows what God's will is. Jonathan said it three times. Saul said it twice. Abner will say twice that David is God's king. So, what difference does that make? Abner's in a lust for power. That's what he hungers for, and he'll do what he has to do to get it done. And Abner starts basically two nations. It's not a civil war yet, but it will be in just a second. But now the, now the country is divided. And Abner's willing to do that so that he can be vice president all over again. Meanwhile, by the way, in contrast, that's the way this guy writes, in contrast, David will not even be mentioned in these stories because he won't have any part of it. Let me show you how committed the author is. God won't even be mentioned in these stories because one through four isn't supposed to be part of the stories. This is what happens when people want to do whatever they want to do regardless of what God's will is. And David will not fight for his crown because he won't kill a brother. He won't kill another Jew to get what God wants. He, he, they're one battle away, and David could take this whole thing, but David doesn't want any part of that. He wants to wait on the Lord because he'd rather have a little righteousness or a little with righteousness than the throne with guilt. That's the story. This is Abner, the ambitious snake. He's starting a civil war. He's splitting a kingdom. In Proverbs, it says this. There are six things, chapter 6, there are six things the Lord hates. No, there are seven things that are detestable to him. Okay, when you hear the writer of Proverbs say that, when, they, when he interrupts himself and says, no, 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 there's one more, go to the bottom one. That's the one that really lights God on fire. 
There are six things the Lord hates. No, seven things that are detestable to him. The seventh thing, the one who splits a family, the one who divides a unity, the one who separates a kingdom, a nation, a family, a church, because God has designed us to be together, to be connected, to humbly submit to one another, to submit to authority, to have authority without being a bully about it, to have harmony, not chaos and noise. And so that's what God's design is, and this thing that he detests is the one that divides that. This is Abner. And this next story we're supposed to be repulsed by because it goes from a divided nation to an honest-to-goodness civil war where brothers will kill brothers. And the way it's written is so that you are so disgusted with the depth of the depravity of these ambitious vice presidents that you, you want to expel them from your own soul. What happens in this story is the two men meet with their armies, two armies, one nation, or one, and it's, it's, at the, it's at the pool of Gibeah, it says, and they make sport out of killing. That's why it's supposed to be deplorable to us. They make sport out of killing. Nothing good comes from this civil war. Just widows and mothers crying over graves. And we were not meant to kill. You might know that almost 90%, 88% of the muskets at the Battle of Gettysburg were loaded when the war was over. The Confederate troops didn't shoot at the Union soldiers. And there's three general reasons why that happened, but the, the primary one was written by Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman in a book called On Killing. And he, and he noticed how in the First and Second World War, most men wouldn't shoot other people. They would spray over their enemy or not even shoot their guns at all. And it was his conclusion after teaching at West Point for several years as a professor there that the soul was not designed to kill. I bring that up to say, not only we're not designed to kill our fellow man, but we're not designed to kill someone in our own country, our tribesmen, and that's what's happening here. Here's what happens. Then Abner suggested to Joab, let's have a few of our warriors fight hand-to-hand -hand in front of us. Let's make sport of this. And Joab, you know, he's in the swamp with him. Sure. And so 12 from the house of David and 12 from the house of Saul, they pair up with each other, they grab each other by the hair, they pull out a knife, and they stab each other to death. 24 men, boom, for no reason, for entertainment, for the, for the drunkenness on two men's ambition. And now it becomes a frenzy, and now hundreds are killed, and Abner kills Joab's little brother. Remember that. And then finally, someone puts a stop to it. Do you resent the men yet? Do you resent Abner and Joab? That's what we want. They, he starts a civil war. He's taking the lives of his fellow countrymen for what? For what? So he could have a little power. Well, as you would imagine, it takes much longer than I think it should have. They're, they're going against God's will. And so the summary of this mini civil war uh, is, is in chapter 3, verse 1. The summary of it is the war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time, almost seven years. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. 
So Abner sees the writing on the wall. This is like a drama, isn't it? So Abner sees the writing on the wall and says, okay, it's getting weaker and weaker. He makes one more run to be an heir to the throne of, of Israel. Doesn't work out. And so what does he do? Does he repent? No, oh God, no, 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 goodness, no. Does, you know, does he come to his senses? Of course not. He changes sides. He just, he realizes that Israel won't last for very much longer, so he switches sides. And so he goes over, and so um, it says in chapter 3, verse 12, and then Abner sent a message on behalf, on his behalf to say to David, hey, whose land is this anyway? Make an agreement with me, and I will help you bring all of Israel to you. David is all for it. Then he meets with the elders of Israel. Here's what he says. Abner conferred with the elders of Israel and said, for some time now you've wanted to make David your king. Yeah. And then you started a civil war. So, and then he says, well, now you can do it. And here, here's Abner quoting God's will, doesn't care if he's in it or not. For Jehovah promised David, by my servant David, I will rescue my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of their other armies. He's pretending to be righteous to get what he wants. We do that? Everybody, you know, right? So we, we play the game of church or we play the game of, of doing the things that God wants so that we use him as a means to an end. Yeah, I'll, do, I'll say the right things if I know I'm going into an interview with the right person, and so I'll say what I need to say there. I'll, I'll, I'll say and do what I have to do to get this date going and this relationship develop, and then after all the vows are said, poof. So this idea of pretending righteousness to gain what you're selfishly ambitious with, it goes back 3,000 years. It's been going on a long time. He finally meets with David. Abner does. And then Abner said to David, let me go at once and assemble Israel for the Lord, my, the king, so they uh, may make a covenant with you, and then you can rule over uh, all of us with your heart in all your heart's desires. And David sent Abner away, and he went away in peace. So here's the story. Abner wins. He uses all his politicking. He destroys the country for seven years. He costs the death of many innocent men. And now David sends them away in peace. Looks like he's going to make it to the right kingdom after all. And he lives happily ever after. You think it ends well for Abner? Think he can play both sides against each other for very long? You think he can mock God and then pretend to be righteous and get away with that? Joab finds out. Joab, his competitor, and Abner wants his job. Joab, who realizes this man started a civil war. Joab, Abner killed his little brother. As one preacher said, for God has a paddle for every backside. Abner's got a big backside, and Joab is that paddle. In chapter 3, verse 27, and when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the gateway as though to speak with him polite, privately. And there he avenged the, the blood of his brother, and Joab stabbed him in the stomach, and he died. You know how he died? You know how Abner died? Like those 24 men did at the pool of Gilead. That's how he died. It's ironic, but listen, what, what's happened just right now? It's still wrong. This isn't a battle victory. This is a murder. And it's not a murder anywhere. It's a, it's a murder here in, in a uh, priestly town. 
He's, he's murdered in a, a city of refuge, a place of peace, a place of justice. And so what is David going to do with this murder? He's going to do the righteous thing. He didn't know about it. It says it twice in the passage, but look in verse 28. It's stated again. And then when David heard about this, he said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before Jehovah concerning the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. And then David, look at look, David turns to Joab. David said to Joab and all the people, you tear your clothes and you put on sackcloth and you walk in mourning in front of Abner. You're going to grieve like we just grieve for the king. It's the same outline. You tear your clothes, put on sackcloth, mourn, and we will fast all day until the sun sets. And it starts with you, Joab. It's... It's somewhat, I don't know, interesting that everybody knows we're talking about Abner, right? The sewer rat, the man who caused all this trouble in the first place. And so I think the funeral was early in the morning because the sun, people are getting tired of fasting. And so they go to David and they say, hey, 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 look, I mean, it's five o'clock. The sun sets at 630. Let's just, you know, we fasted efficiently for a sewer rat. And so here's what he says. They're trying to get him to eat. And so then verse 35, and then all came, all of them came and urged David to eat something while there was still day. But David took an oath saying, may God deal with me, be ever so severely if I taste bread or anything else before the sun sets. It was still evil what happened here. I will still grieve him because there was a gross violation of the laws of God. And it took place right here in this safe city. And because of his righteousness, because he could wear that ring, and he could do it without a violation of conscience. Here's what all the people say, verse 36, their next sentence. And all the people took note, and they were pleased. Indeed, everything the king did pleased them. So on that day, all the people and all of Israel knew that the king had no part in the murder of Abner, the son of Ner. David did nothing for this ill-gotten gain. His hands were clean, and you know why? Because he believes in this sentence, it's down in the book Proverbs, better is a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. That's the theme. Let's say this together. Ready? Go. Better a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. Well, there's one more story, I'm afraid, because there's still kind of a loose end, right? Ishbosheth. He's still kind of the king of Israel, the northern ten and a half tribes. And when he gets word, look what he does. And when Ithbosheth, the son of Saul, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage. And all of Israel became alarmed because all of Israel's in trouble for the civil war. Now Saul's son, Ishbosheth's son, had two brothers who were leaders of raiding bands. So Ithbosheth had two trusted, I don't know, palace guards. And here's what they're thinking. Abner's gone. This has been a losing war for some time now. I know. I know the way kings think, right? This is how you become king. You're born into it or you kill your way into it. And David's going to be selfishly ambitious like all the other men. No one can wear that ring without being contaminated. And so what do they do? They use their security pass to get into the, the royal throne room where Ishbosheth is having an afternoon nap. And it says, and they stabbed him and then they killed him, and then they decapitated him. They were so excited about the work they had done all for David that they run to Hebron, verse 8, and then they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, 
Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. You know, Saul, your enemy, who tried to take your life. This day, Jehovah has avenged my Lord, the king against the, uh, the, the king against Saul and all of his offspring. Uh oh. These two brothers, the security guards, they don't know David. They don't know David's been sifted. They don't know David's been refined by God. They don't know any of the stories of David living in those caves, or should I say kilns, where God purified this young man and became a man of God. <laughs> they, they don't know the story of David in 1 Samuel chapter 24 and 26 because they didn't go to church last weekend either. I'm telling you, if you miss church, it can cost you a lot. Their ignorance is very expensive here because they don't understand that David's understanding of authority and submission authority goes all the way to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and so they brag about the very thing that will condemn them. And so David says this. David answered Rechabin, the brother, whatever his name is, and as surely as Jehovah lives, who has delivered me out of all this trouble, who got David out of trouble? The Lord got David out of trouble. And when a man told me Saul is dead, and though he was bringing me, thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and put him to death, death at Ziklag, and that was the reward I gave him for this news. How much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house, in his own bed, should I not now demand the blood from your hands and rid the earth of you too? Snaps his finger, and they're both cut in half. That's the way David lives. And he's innocent of any of this. He is now the king of the north and the south. There is no family of Saul and family of David. There is a united kingdom. This is it. Here, there's no more competitors. But what is David going to do with those northern tribes that for seven years have drug out this process and gone along for the ride? Look at five, next chapter, 5, verse 1. And all the tribes of Israel came down to David at Hebron and said, we, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over this, you, you were the one who led Israel in our military campaigns. And as Jehovah said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. So... <laughs> How are things? King David, we've, we've been waiting for a long time for this. This is when I've, I feel like this is the power of David's self-forgetfulness. Because with all of this has taken place where he had a finish line and then it was extended by ambitious men, here's how he responds to them. It, it works better in 1 Chronicles. Same story but with more details. And when they came to Hebron, fully determined to make David the king over all of Israel, all the rest of the Israelites were also one in mind to make David king. And they spent three days there with David, eating and drinking. Look at the litany of details. There was plentiful supplies of flour and fig cakes and raisin cakes and wine and olive oil and the cattle and the sheep. There was joy in Israel. These men came down and the, and the tribes came down to Hebron. And they had their tails between their legs because they should. And David greets them and says, you're mine. You're my brothers. Let's go. Let's do God's will. I'll be God's king in the United Kingdom, and we'll do things that only God has in mind for us. How about that? How about we just do God's will, God's way this time? 
I think if you want to learn something from this passage, this is what you need to learn. That God has a great ambition for you and I. It's certain. This part of the ambition is for sure. It's not to be a king. It is that we would become mature and complete and lacking in nothing. And that's why David spent a lot of time on the run. He has designed life to make that happen. And we have a deep and profound desire for that in our soul's soul. God wants us to be Christ-like. That's his will for our life. There's also an aspect of his will for life, for our, his will for our life that we have hungers for, that are appropriate, that are from God. And it's okay to hunger for those things. The, the longing not to suffer from loneliness. The desire not to live in fear. These are primary things that God wants to address in our life. Not to be alone, not to be afraid. But here's what we need to learn. In our hungering for those primary things, do not grow weary in doing good. I think David might say it this way. Learn to live with hunger. Learn to maybe even enjoy the growl of your stomach because if you're not willing to enjoy a sparse amount with righteousness, then you will compromise to even get what God would have for you. And it's, you, don't want, you don't want to pay that. You don't, you don't want to do that. If you go to where everyone else goes, where the world goes to get some of these things quenched, they don't want to be lonely, okay? and, they, and they don't want to be afraid. If you go to that to get that quenched outside of God's desire for your life, friends, that is, that is quenching thirst with ocean water. It makes you sicker. It, it's killing you faster. David, David would tell us, wait, just wait. Do not grow weary in doing good. Because if you do not grow weary in doing good, your hunger will be, it, it will be satisfied. There is a banquet of consequences that, are com- that is coming your way. That is a promise in this life or the next. There's a banquet of consequences that are coming, and God himself is setting the table. This is the theme for those first four chapters. Here it is again. Better a little of righteousness than much gain with injustice. Let's say that one more time. Better a little with righteousness Better unemployment and underemployment with a clear conscience when you know you're in God's will than some corner office where you're burning an ulcer, where you've lost your soul, your compass is broken. Better, better, better loneliness in isolation than playing the game that the world plays where you compromise your virtue and your values, your body and your soul and you get what God would have for you, right? connection with another human soul. But it's, there's a loneliness when you have a, a toxic friendship or a toxic marriage that is nothing in comparison to the loneliness and isolation when you have a clear conscience. Better is one day with the Lord than a thousand elsewhere. Better is a little with a righteousness than a lot with injustice. David would tell you if he came here right now, he would say, do not grow weary in doing good. Wait, God's will, 
God's way, God's timing. Not about you. It's about him. Before we pray, I need, I need to tell you, it'll help you understand my prayer. This thing in us, this Joab and Abner, it, it's deep. The rebellion in us, our desire to do whatever we want, it's not something you kind of pray away or discipline yourself. This is an evil that's greater than your power. This is bigger than you. It's not bigger than God's spirit. This is an addiction in us. The only cure is death. But until then, a lot of maintenance. So I just it's gonna sound like a pretty harsh prayer. I just wanted you to know where it's coming from, okay? <laughs> I'm, it's serious surgery, okay? So let's pray. Let's pray to this end. Be like David. Be like David. Lord Jesus, we lift up, or God the Father, we lift up to you our souls that are dark with selfish ambition and empty conceit. That even when we do good things, we do it for the wrong reasons. Even when we do your will, we often do it our way. God, I'd ask that your spirit would ignite ours so that we might be able to recognize the selfishness in our ambitions, the desire for fame or fortune or power. And I ask that you would maybe even today convince us that this is not something that we get over. It's something that glory has to change, that we would live dependent upon your spirit's power over the power of this independence, that we would be dependent on your spirit's desire that we would have miserly in righteousness as opposed to wealth and injustice. Lord, would you help us desire to be like David, content in a cave because he's with you, than in a throne room without you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.